Apple iTunes under Friends of Mutiny. A smashing time will be had by all. Until next Saturday night at 8 p.m., cheerio, darlings. Flat Black Plastic. It's special...
morning, mutineers. It's the B, and this is Labor and Love Radio, and you are welcome. Happy Saturday.
drink milk. Might like to eat caviar. Might like to eat bread. Maybe sleeping on the floor, even on a king-size bed. But you gotta serve somebody. The Jews came every day to what they thought would be fun in the showers, and mothers are quite ingenious. Ah, hear me out. They would take children and hide them in bundles of clothing. We found the children, scrubbed them, returned them to the chambers and sealed them in. I watched through the portholes. They would darken, beat breast, and chant, Hey, mein lieber Hey, they took out their clean Jewish leather rings, removed their teeth and hair for strategic events. I made so bad of them. I made so bad of all of them, and they hung me in full view of the prison yard. People say Adolf Eichmann should have been hung. Nine. Do you recognize the who of them and all of you that you would have done the same if you dared know yourselves? I was a soldier. This is no defense that I was a soldier. A good soldier. I saw the end of a conscientious effort. I saw all the work that I did. I, Adolf Eichmann, watched through the portholes. I saw every Jew burned and turned into soap. Do you people think yourselves better because you burned your enemies at long distances with missiles? Without ever seeing what you had done to them, Hiroshima Monomoran, Achvida Sein, and good night.
Lenny Bruce, ladies and gentlemen. Lenny Bruce. Okay, thought I'd sneak that one in. <clears throat> this is Labor and Love Radio, and that was uh, Lenny Bruce drawing a parallel between the way Nazis treated children and uh, the way the United States treated children when they dropped uh, bombs on, atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and firebombed uh, Tokyo. Also, bringing, you know, bringing up uh, the treatment of children. How are we treating children as uh, United States taxpayers? Okay, this is the B, and this is Labor and Love Radio. We're coming at you from 2781 21st Street, the heart of the mission. La Misión, El Mero Mero. Celebrating not only uh, Labor Day month, but September, el 16 de septiembre, the Independence Day of Mexico, and the 17th, was it the 15th, I believe, the, the, the Dias de Independencia of several Central American uh, countries. This is the B, and this is Labor and Love, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, at the negotiating table where you work, or you're not represented there, you're on the menu. They're cutting up your life. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Can't say it enough. It matters. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Good morning, everybody. Happy September 7th, 2019. The Labor and Love Show, where we uh, bring you labor opinion, commentary, news, history, labor culture. We started out, as I said, with uh, the last one we played was uh, Lenny Bruce's take on Adolf Eichmann. Now, Bruce was a uh, a troublesome voice in the 1950s, in the Pax Americana, in the early 60s. Because he would not compromise. I mean, he could have been popular, but he had to come and do things like this, like compare the treatment of Nazis' treatment of people with uh, the bomb on Hiroshima. Eddie James, before that, with uh, you got to serve somebody, and you know you do. <clears throat> might be the devil, and it might be the Lord. It might be capital, and it might be labor. Who are you going to serve? You got to serve somebody. And then we had Canto Libre, the song by the great Victor Jara. Um... A Chileno, I ran into a Chileno yesterday, reminded me of uh, 
uh, September in 1973, Victor Jara, like so many, was imprisoned in the the uh, soccer stadium where torture was carried out and beatings and executions, so much so that the Russian national team canceled a soccer match and refused to play a game against the Chilean national team because of the bloody, bloody hell house that the uh, soccer stadium had been. So Chile played the game and won by default. And before that, Santana with his joyous coming our way, and you got to believe it, things are coming our way. And we'll be happy to let you know why we think that. What have we got got for you today? We've got, um, went and saw the Bruce Springsteen movie, Blinded by the Light. So play some of The Boss. Uh, Springsteen became, after after his beginning, became a very strong voice for social justice. We'll play some of his songs. Went and saw the movie American Factory. American Factory. Um, it's on uh, Netflix. Talked a little about American Factory last week. Um... Uh, as a Chinese uh, corporation and its CEO take over an American factory to um, manufacture auto glass and the blending of the two cultures and the, the opposition of the two cultures as Chinese workers come to the U.S. to work and American workers, thankful for the work, run headlong into the Chinese uh, labor culture, which is, well, different, gung-ho. Another one we saw this week was Mine Wars, a Ken Burns PBS two-hour show about uh, the struggle in the uh, in West Virginia with miners UMW against the owners who had the mostly had the uh, law enforcement agencies and the apparatus of the judicial system in their favor and it got to be a shooting war million rounds of ammunition were expended a lot of the miners were U.S. veterans from World War I, 1920-21, 
Check it out. And uh, right to work. I mean, keep hearing that phrase. Where did it come from? Its roots is rooted in bias against, mostly against African Americans. Labor history in two minutes. What happened on this day in labor history? Radio Labor is back. And uh, Maya Angelou. Saw a picture of Maya Angelou performing as a, a dancer, an exotic dancer. She worked also as a, on the cable car. One of the first women to ever work on the cable car. And worked as a prostitute. Um, became good friends with Malcolm X. We'll talk more about Maya Angelou. <clears throat> right now, let's get on to our radio labor. We've missed radio labor the last few weeks. They've been on vacation. Here we go. In Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Friday, September 6th, 2019. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, the push is on to get an international law against violence in the workplace ratified. The work of the Regional Labor Organization of the Americas. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and rapping. This is Radio Labor. Unions and their members around the world are starting a major push to get a new international law about violence in the workplace ratified by countries. The new law is Convention 190 of the UN's International Labor Organization. I talked to Chidi King about the law. Ms. King is the director of the Equality Department of the International Trade Union Confederation, the ITUC. I asked her to describe ILO Convention 190. Convention 190 is the Violence and Harassment Convention. That's its short title. And it's the first time that we've had an international law that looks at preventing, addressing, and redressing violence and harassment in the world of work, including gender-based violence, which is particularly important. The, um, the convention actually re recognizes that gender-based violence is a particular form of violence and harassment that requires particular um, attention and measures in order to be able to deal with it and eradicate it from the world of work. It was adopted by the Conference of the International Labor Organization by a majority of votes from trade union movement, of course, by governments as well, and employers. And this is something that the trade union movement has been campaigning for for quite some time, given that there was no international law that set this minimum baseline attributing responsibilities to governments, to employers, and to workers and their organizations, so all actors in the world of work, to prevent, address, and redress violence and harassment, particularly gender-based violence and harassment. And I should also say that the Convention, for the first time, outlines the right of everyone to a world of work free of violence and harassment. So this is the first time that this has been clearly delineated in international law. 
as regards the world of work um, specifically. What is the next step in the process of implementing the ILO's Convention on Violence and Harassment, Convention 190? The next step for us now is to ensure that there is wide take-ups or ratification of these instruments in order to promote the cultural change we want to see both in our workplaces and wider society at large. Ratification means that governments agree to adopt the law at national level, so take the necessary measures to bring the convention into law at national level and to give effect to it, so to implement it effectively. Um, From the ILO perspective, a minimum of two countries will need to ratify the convention before it can come into force. And then it will only come into force a year after the second country has ratified. The coming into force of the convention, of course, is particularly important because that's when it really does start to have um, normative effect. Wide ratification is also important in the sense that we we do want to create this level playing field um, through these minimum standards that set out the action that is necessary for every um, government, every member state that belongs to the International Labour Organization to take in order to end violence and harassment um, in the world of work. What can unions and their members do to help implement ILO Convention 190? Well, I think, um, first of all, raising public awareness. And when I say public awareness, I mean awareness amongst our own membership, as members of the public as well, but the public beyond the trade union movement. It, may not be as widely known as we may like or we may think that these instruments have been adopted and what they can actually do in order to change workplace cultures and where responsibilities lie. So I think raising awareness certainly is the first thing. Ensuring that contact is made with governments in order to start a dialogue around the ratification process is extremely important and pushing our governments to commit to ratification and then implementation, ensuring that we are at the table with our counterparts, of course, in social dialogue, which is often employers, um, but also governments as employers, but ensuring that we are at the table throughout the process to ratify and then implement the instruments. Um, Joining forces with other allies, organizations, partners who are working on issues around violence and harassment and women's or gender equality can also be extremely useful in encouraging ratification by government. The ITUC is the organization which represents national labor centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress at the world level. It has a number of regional organizations such as the Trade Union Confederation of Workers of the Americas, known by its acronym TUCA. The president of TUCA is Hassan Yusuf. Mr. Yusuf, who was born in Guyana, is also the president of the Canadian Labor Congress. I asked him to describe TUCA and the issue it faces. TUCA is the regional arm of the ITUC in all of the Americas, including North America, Central and South America. And it brings all some 60 affiliates under the umbrella of TUCA. Since the creation of the ITUC, we had merged other organizations in the region that was uh, separate, that was not part of the, the family originally, and the creation of the ITUC of, uh, led to a more broadened uh, base for uh, TUCA as, as a regional institution. 
the challenges we're facing in Turkey is similar like we're seeing around the world. There's been a lot of neoliberal right-wing government getting elected in the Americas. And of course, the challenge they bring to workers' organization has been absolutely devastating, where we're seeing government rolling back the historical gains the workers have made under progressive government in places like Brazil, in Argentina, and of course, in places like Chile and Central America, where there's increasing violence that workers are faced with, the challenges of how they can build an economy for greater participation. All these are issues that we're struggling with. At the same time, recognize we got to strengthen the role of democracy within our region. We thought we had made some significant gains after the, the you know the rise of the military regime that we have seen in, in, in Latin America that has been so brutal to working people. We're seeing a return of that. And more importantly, we're seeing even you know fascists receive Bolsonaro elections in Brazil. All this threatened the fabric of the trade union movement in the region. Our Congress will be next year, and we're hoping that uh, the focus of this Congress is how do we deal with these issues. Equally, of course, we're trying to work at the same time with progressive government, such as the new elected government in Mexico, as to how we can stamp out protective contracts that's been a feature of that country's labor movement for far too long, and how we can build a democratic trade union movement in parts of Latin America and Central America and the Americas in general to ensure that working people have strong voice to defend their interests and uh, to bring them under the umbrella. At the same time, of course, our movement are, you know, much broadly represented by women today than it's ever been in its history. And, of course, the work to ensure that gender issues are top of mind um, for our, our regional organization as we continue to build and support the work of the ILO. And uh, most um, in the very near future, in uh, later in September, we'll be holding our regional conference uh, on, on women's issues. And the top priority there is how we can ratify the latest uh, convention of the ILO that's going to deal with violence and harassment in the workplace. We have also, in the Americas, have ratified a number of countries. We have the most countries that's now ratified of the domestic workers' convention, and we hope to amplify the work that needs to go on how we can deal with these gender issues within a region. So at the same time, recognizing that the kind of attack we're seeing on our trade union movement in the region, we need a united movement that can push back against uh, this new liberal agenda in the Americas. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of stories about unions and workers from around the world in 31 languages. Here's a small sample of those stories. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the accusations of sedition being used against union leaders in Trinidad and Tobago, the key role of unions in the Hong Kong protests, and how the government and people of Timor-Leste thanked the Australian labor movement for its support during the struggle for independence. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. We carried stories about wage strikes by Tunisian postal workers, Portuguese and Angolan petroleum truckers, French emergency healthcare workers, Dutch airline workers, security guards in Namibia, police in the Central African Republic, hotel and tourism workers in French Polynesia, Argentinian dockers, Spanish train drivers, newspaper workers on the island of Reunion, Belgian and Chilean teachers, and Canadian and Mexican taxi drivers.
Strikes against rollbacks were being mounted by Canadian forestry workers, Portuguese judicial staff, and beer delivery drivers, Peruvian court staff, youth care workers in the Netherlands, and British rail workers. Walkouts caused by ongoing government austerity policies were underway in Portugal, Brazil, Argentina, Mali, Finland, Cameroon, and in France, where firefighters are demanding that hundreds of long vacant positions be filled. Solidarity strikes were being organized in France over the sacking of a union activist. In Uruguay, after the closure of a hospital, it was announced, and in Canada, where a factory scheduled to move to Mexico was occupied and the transfer of equipment stopped. Work stoppages in response to attacks on union rights included the struggle by Costa Rican teachers to retain their right to strike, a walkout over the way in which a wireless provider in Niger is shutting down, and a recognition strike by Mexican window factory workers. Our Working Women pages, now available in eight languages, included stories about why a group of French hotel workers have been off the job for almost 150 days, and why so many other room attendants are joining them, not just in France, but in Canada, South Africa, and Italy, and the fight against wage discrimination in the education system of Ghana and the Indian Community Development System. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about a series of flash strikes in France in response to violent attacks on emergency workers and a new report that suggests that up to a quarter of workers in the UK are overstressed and headed for a breakdown. Currently, Labor Start is running five online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is My People, sung by Adam Baum. Entertainers. This is for the plumbers and the painters, the pots and pans, scrubbers and the waiters, truckers and landscapers, the pavers, the physical instructors and trainers, the cabbies, the supers, the bouncers, the movers, the teachers, all the youth counselors and tutors, the cooks, flipping hamburgers and sales account managers, the maids, the janitors, the realtors, the movers, whether you in the office or the mall selling Reeboks, a factory you're pushing cell phones out of kiosks, a service technician, a nurse, an electrician, a clerk, whether you work on research or a transmission. This is for my people with purpose and ambition. Firefighters and farmers, bank tellers and barbers, paramedics and artists up in tattoo parlors. All my entrepreneurs relying on solid partners. My bus drivers and couriers riding around in the city. Pizza boys surviving off by the hour deliveries. My caterers and dentists and gas station attendants. This is for everybody behind the counter and Timmy's and anyone dealing cars, construction and decent cars who come in with good intentions and end up leaving with scars. This is for telemarketing callers and CSRs who spend their day on computers to spend their evening at bars. This one's for the moms and dads collecting trash or working two jobs because they tax your check in half. My full-timers, part-timers, nine to fivers, all-nighters. Never let them make you think that you're second class. My people, 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 my people
My People is a production of the Service Employees International Union, the SEIU. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
set free But right now you got a whole house of mouths to feed Time is really running thin Can you fit a breakfast in? Lucky if you see your kids Zebra take this moment in Out the door and on your way Off you go another day Gotta be on time today And update that resume Cause this recession is a test They're making cuts Now they want more for less If you start to Feel that extra stress, just do your best and leave the rest. Our ancestors did it too, somehow they all made it through. Something that we all must do, keep hope alive, keep hope alive, you'll make it too. And in case nobody told you on your job today, and in case they didn't tell you on your job today, Las Cafeteras would like to say thank you. To mothers who sacrifice to make ends meet. Thank you. To fathers who faithfully take care of their seeds. Thank you. To farm workers, the food you harvest keeps us alive. Thank you. To teachers training their students to excel and survive. and bakers for our daily bread to TAs, assistants, and those teaching special ed bus drivers getting us to work on time for DJs, breakers, writers, and MCs who rhyme students with two jobs hitting those books at night and the organizers bringing us together to fight the little ones doing their chores and homework and all those under and unemployed looking for work factory workers, migrants from distant lands South Central farmers teaching us to work with the land. Construction workers building up the world with their hands. These days time passes faster than the quickest of sands. From peace workers and sweatshops, street vendors on each block, spiritual leaders and sweats, hot heat cleanses like detox, those working against addiction, fighting against eviction, the culture workers, musicians and artists on a mission to transform our community with care and conviction. To single parents making miracles each week And to our elders for the truth and the courage you speak To ancestors whose hard work paved the way And to everyone who's out there doing labor today To my indigenous people and our creator too We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you So thank you Estoy del suelo donde he nacido Inmensa nostalgia invade mi pensamiento Y al verme tan sola y triste cual hoja al viento Quisiera llorar, quisiera morir 
Downs there with a cancion Mixteca, a song of a Mexican person who's outside of Mexico. Suspiro por verte. With every breath I long to see you. I'm far from my native land. <clears throat> Leela Downs sang that in Spanish as well as, as the uh, native Mexican, native. Uh, Indigenous, the indigenous tribe, indigenous uh, language, Cancion Mixteca. Before that, we had a couple of songs appreciating everyday workers from Las Cafeteras, one of them. <clears throat> the song is called Trabajador, Trabajadora, worker, man, and woman, and uh, the cafeteras are giving thanks to their parents to all the hard work that they did to uh, raise their children and educate them. And before that, uh, Adam Baum with My People, a rap celebrating the work of everyday workers. Uh, that was part of the radio labor presentation. Um, this is Labor and Love Radio, and we're coming at you from 2781 21st Street. We do have a physical plant here where we produce and uh, disseminate our, our live programs. You can also go to the Mutiny 
radio.fm website and find archive shows. Just pick out the name of the show you want. For example, Labor and Love Radio, Labor and Love. And any one of the shows from the past several months, years even, are available there to you. Just want to mention also that here at Mutiny Radio, we have what really is functioning as a community arts center. We have uh, new art installations every month. We have uh, comedy. Mutiny Radio is kind of the center for the underground comedy movement. And uh, our station director, Pam Benjamin, uh, is the honcho for the Mutiny Radio Labor Comedy Festival, which happens every year. It's going to happen this March. And if you're interested in being a sponsor of that event, um, call us. Call us at the Mutiny number. Um, it's 415-550-0511. And ask to talk to... Uh, Pam Benjamin, our uh, station manager. So we've been hearing a lot about um, Muslims, a new boogeyman in our uh, ongoing quest for enemies is uh, Islam. And the feelings that a lot of people have about Islam and about Muslim people are based on ignorance. And this is one of our commentators, Francesca Ramsey of uh, Decoded, talking about, do all Muslim women wear a hijab? What exactly is a hijab and what does it mean? Here's Francesca. That makes zero sense. Yeah, but it rhymes. Let's go back to the beginning. To say all Muslim women wear hijabs would be like saying all hipsters in Brooklyn drink fancy coffee while riding unicycles. That would be inaccurate and frankly ignorant because only 47% of Brooklyn hipsters ride unicycles. But bad hipster jokes aside, the truth of the matter is the hijab in America seems to get a disproportionate amount of attention considering that only 38% of Muslim American women wear a hijab in public all the time. And since Muslims only make up about 1% of the US population, this means we're really only talking about 650 50,000 people, which sounds like a lot, but our country is really big. But before we can understand that bigger picture, it's probably a good idea to know exactly what the hijab is and why do some Muslim women choose to wear it. Let's check in with my friend Faria Khan to get a better understanding. Thanks, Francesca. Okay, for starters, what is a hijab? Good first question, y'all. In Arabic, hijab translates to cover. All right, cool, got it. But wait, there's a twist. There is not one, but many types of veils. Yeah, it's slideshow time. First, we get that classic square scarf that covers the hair and neck, commonly worn in the West. This is what is mostly known as a hijab. This can also be referred to as a kimar or also a shaila, with a variety of ways to wear them, huh? 
Next up, the chadar is a long cloak popular in Iran. Similar to the hijab, Shaila and Kimar, the chadar covers the hair and keeps the face clear, but drapes down to the feet. Black is the most popular color, but sometimes they got fun patterns too. The niqab covers the face and body, but leaves the eyes clear. These are commonly worn in Saudi Arabia, South Asia, and North Africa. Finally, burqas cover the entire face and body, leaving a small mesh screen over the eyes. Burqas are worn most often in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Whoa! So many variations, so many styles, so many ways to do you. Or you could be like me that one time when I was 10 and I forgot to bring a hijab to Sunday school. And instead, I just put a t-shirt over my head and went to class. Everyone called me t-shirt girl. That was my bad. I'm sorry I brought shame to my family. Let's move on! Second off, what are the multiple reasons women choose to wear a hijab? Very astute second question, gang slash script writers. Some women choose to wear hijabs because they interpret the Quran, the teachings from God, as suggesting they dress modestly to protect from unwanted harassment based on their appearance. It's an expression of their faith. As a side note, truly insane to realize street harassers have been around since religion. Dang, dudes! But for other Muslim American women, it's not so much about religious faith as it is cultural identity. In a way, we're all just out here trying to rep who we are. Some American Muslims choose to wear hijabs because they want to express their identity to the world. Think about how, for example, some Christians like to wear crosses even if they don't go to church every week, or how vegans always find a way to bring up their lifestyle in casual conversation. Because for lots of people, being Muslim is not just about religion, it's also about growing up in a community of like-minded people tied together by food, family, and good times. In fact, the attitudes that American Muslims have about the importance of their religion in their day-to-day -day lives are shockingly similar to Christian Americans. Check out these stats! We're basically the same. Also, it's worth noting that the laws around hijab vary by country. Some countries require women to wear hijabs, such as Iran, and some countries have banned the hijab completely, such as France. However, putting laws on how women choose to express their faith and identity is repressive. That is essentially a country projecting onto a woman how she should look and act, which we all know is oppressive as hell. That's why the fact that America allows the freedom to choose whether or not to wear a hijab is such a beautiful thing for the Muslim community. So yeah, you heard it here first from a Muslim girl herself. America is tight. What's up, Bill of Rights? Okay, but does every Muslim woman wear a hijab? No! On the flip side, many Muslim women choose not to wear hijabs for a variety of reasons. For example, there are Muslim women who acknowledge that the Quran teaches modesty, but they don't interpret wearing a hijab as a specific religious commandment. I personally choose not to wear a hijab. The way I grew up, I didn't wear a hijab except for when my family went to the mosque, which was mostly for Sunday school and for Eid celebrations, which happened twice a year. And if you don't know what Eid is, it's like Christmas for Muslims. It's a big party, we have a good time, and we live to eat, baby. In addition, wearing a hijab in the Western world can actually draw more attention and at times harassment to women, which is the exact opposite goal of what the Quran even intended. For example, there have been reports of women who have been attacked in public for wearing hijabs. News stories have aired of people freaking out about Sharia law when a group of young girls wearing hijabs got their own swim class at a YMCA in Minnesota. Cut! Dang! Unfortunately, these acts are based on a larger misinterpretation that all Muslims are somehow involved or connected to terrorism, which is simply not true. Islam's core teachings are peace and love for all human beings. Just like any culture or religion, there are groups of people within it who choose to act in extreme and terrible ways, but those people do not define the whole population. There are 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. We are not all the exact same or even practice Islam in the same way. 
For me, my Muslim identity was built on going to Sunday school as a kid, to hang out with my friends a bunch, trying to be the Sunday school class clown, convincing the boys to let me play football with them in the parking lot because I had a crush on this one kid, and then trying to sneak in as much food as possible at Eve parties. Totally. <laughs> I'm proud of my Muslim heritage. Even if I don't pray five times a day or I'm not like super religious, which my dad says I'm lazy for, but I just think I'm chill. Being Muslim is part of my identity and it makes up who I am. I wouldn't be the same without my cultural background. Thanks, that was super insightful, Faria. So it seems Islam has a lot of different perspectives, but I think the most important thing that I learned is Muslims, they love to eat a lot at parties, but who doesn't? Exactly. Halal's are a hot and contentious topic right now, but no one interpretation is the only correct interpretation. Special thanks to Faria for helping out this week. Good. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time right here on Decoded. That was Francesca Ramsey bringing us uh, the skinny about hijabs. Uh, a lot of what we think and express about Muslim people and about about uh, Muslim culture is based on ignorance and hatred and anger. Okay, let's see what we got here. Um, got Bruce Springsteen, labor history in two minutes. September 7th, in the year 1980, actors strike and boycott the Emmys. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1980. The 32nd annual Emmy Awards show took place despite 51 of the 52 nominated performers boycotting the event. At issue was a strike by the members of the Screen Actors Guild. Powers Booth was the only nominated actor to attend. He won the Emmy that year for portraying the cult leader Jim Jones in a made-for-TV movie. In his acceptance speech, he acknowledged his lonely presence at the Emmys. He said, this is either the most courageous moment of my career or the stupidest. SAG members, along with the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists and the American Federation of Musicians, all went on strike that summer. Members of the Screen Actors Guild were displeased with their salaries. They wanted a 32% increase. They were also concerned about changes in the industry. They did not feel they were being compensated for the revenue they helped generate through paid cable and video cassettes. The Screen Actors Guild had its origins in the Maskers Club. Actors formed that club because they were upset with the grueling hours expected of them by Hollywood Studios. Eventually, in 1933, the Screen Actors Guild was started. After initial hesitation by some big-name actors to join the union, SAG membership grew from 80 to more than 4,000 members. Many famous actors supported the union, including Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney. In the late 1940s, future President Ronald Reagan was elected president and served served as president of SAG for seven terms. The 1980 strike was one of the longer strikes in the union's history, lasting 94 days and settling at the end of October. Hooray for Hollywood, that phony super coney Hollywood. 
Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. How about the first Labor Day, 1882? I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. What are your plans for Labor Day weekend? Are you going to enjoy a barbecue with family and friends? Or maybe march with your union in a parade? Do you know the history of this holiday? On this day in labor history, the year was 1882. The first Labor Day celebration took place in New York City. 10,000 workers marched in a parade from City Hall to Union Square, then uptown to 42nd Street. Afterwards, there was a picnic, concert, and speeches. The workers included in their festivities a demand for the eight-hour day. The Labor Day events were organized by the New York Central Labor Union, an umbrella group of local union representatives. Workers wanted to show the strength of the emerging labor movement and push for improvements in working conditions. By 1884, Labor Day was celebrated in 23 states. The labor movement was growing and gaining even more attention after the 1894 Pullman strike. According to the AFL-CIO, in what most historians call an election year attempt to appease workers after the federal crackdown on the Pullman strike, shortly after the strike was broken, President Grover Cleveland signed legislation making the first Monday in September Labor Day, a federal holiday. Interestingly, May 1st is traditionally considered International Workers Day. President Cleveland did not want workers commemorating such events as the Haymarket tragedy, so he proposed that the holiday take place the first Monday in September. Today, far too few people remember Labor Day's union origins. People now see Labor Day as the unofficial end of summer. In an era when labor union membership has dwindled and far too many workers are not unionized, it is a time to remember the history of this worker-inspired holiday. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. What are your plans for Labor Day weekend? Are you going to enjoy? Okay, what were your plans? You have Labor Day weekend. What did you do? Did you celebrate the labor movement and uh, its achievements that have made so many people's lives so much better? Did you go out with your family like you do maybe on weekends. Weekends, too, were brought to you by the labor movement. Labor history in two. Okay. Let's look at some... Let's look at some of our credos. These are things that we hold to be self-evident here on Labor and Love Radio. And if you don't agree with them, um, I wonder why you don't agree with them. Listen up and see. This is from Utah Phillips. And um, Phillips is talking about labor history, okay? Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. 
They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for. They were bled for. They were died for by working people, by people like us, you and me. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs, he says. That's why I tell these stories. Damn it, no root, no fruit. Do kids know this? Do they know how they had to work? If they were born a hundred years ago or more? Here's our second credo. This has to do with women's control over their own body. Anyone who doesn't have control over their own body is in some sense a slave. It's from We Resist. When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. Think about that for a minute. A woman, through no fault of her own, gets attacked and raped, and then she's forced to have that child. In many states, the rapist, the quote-unquote father, has visitation rights. If the, in many states, if the woman attempts to abort the birth, she can be tried for murder. That's how much of a slave you are if you don't have control over your own body. Okay, this is Really American by Jesse Memmer. Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if there are undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals, bullshit is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing the reason they're all poor is due to the vast income equality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Please use your brains. The existence of another poor people is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Hear, hear. You're poor because your boss isn't paying you enough. So, you're not that into politics. You're just not that into politics. Well, your boss is, your landlord is, your insurance company is, and every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. 
Time to get into politics. Let's see what else we got on the credo file. Here's another woman's one. So let me see if I've got this right. Um, not allowed to get an abortion because I didn't realize I was pregnant till six weeks. I'm not allowed to get my tubes tied to prevent any more pregnancies because once again, it has to be someone else's rules. What I do with my body. Cut funding to Planned Parenthood so now I can no longer get the cheap birth control to prevent a pregnancy. It's totally okay for groups of men to tell me what I can and can't do with my own body because my rights are being violated, aren't being violated, or because my rights as a woman just aren't that important. Credo. And here's a poem by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Pity the nation. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silenced, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation that raises not its voice Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation, oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears of thee, sweet land of liberty. Or as E.E. E. Cummings put it, so rah, rah, rah for America, let's all be as happy as hell and bury the Statue of Liberty before it begins to smell. Okay, those are our credos. And... Um, that's what we take. That's what we take for granted here on Labor and Love Radio. All right. said I was going to play some Bruce Springsteen. And uh, let's start with Born in the USA. Born in the USA is uh, was greatly misunderstood when it came out. 26 years after its release in 2000, in the year 2010, Glenn Beck finally got around to reading the lyrics to Springsteen's most iconic song. What he discovered in a hilariously incredulous and apoplectic on-air outburst of disbelief is that the title track to Springsteen's 1984 album is not a patriotic, fist-pumping endorsement of the American way. A severe indictment of the Vietnam War and the treatment 
of war veterans in America. Let's listen.
Well, they blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. Now they blew up his house too. Down on the boardwalk, they're getting ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state, and the DA can't get no Skin of its teeth Well now everything dies Baby that's a fact But maybe everything that dies Someday comes back Put your makeup on Fix your hair
That was our Bruce Springsteen set, of course. We started out with uh, Born in the USA. And uh, went on to uh, Death to My Hometown. And uh, finally, Seeds, talking about the great disparity between the lives of People who work, the 99% and the 1% who they work for. I don't know of any rocker who's captured the angst of uh, post-war America, post-Vietnam War America, the sort of the rotting of the, of the system because it was a system based on exploitation. It's a system based on profits. And uh, when it stops being profitable, people move on to the next thing. Look for people in China who can work cheaper. Look for places where they can oppress people and get away with it and pollute the atmosphere just to make a buck and pay their CEOs and their shareholders. All right, well, let's change speed here. We're talking about Fred Glass's California labor history called Golden Land's Working Hands. We're going to take up the story in the early 1900s. In the 1860s, Charles Crocker hires 12,000 Chinese laborers to build the Central Pacific Railroad. They lay tracks east from Sacramento in a race to meet the Union Pacific with its Irish workforce coming west. Crocker is glad to be able to pay the Chinese workers less money than he pays whites. Better still, he boasts there is no danger from strikes among them. The work, however, is dangerous. Primitive explosives take many lives. In one particularly frightening job, workers are lowered over cliffs in baskets. High above the ground, they plant dynamite, light the fuse, and hope they're lifted back to the top of the cliff before they're blown to bits. In the winter of 1866, Record snows fall in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Rather than call a halt until better conditions return, Crocker orders the work to continue in tunnels 50 feet beneath the surface. His assistant tells Congress, The snow slides carried away our camps and we lost a good many men in those slides. Many of them we did not find until the next season when the snow melted. That spring, 5,000 Chinese workers go on strike. They want eight-hour days and to be paid the same as white workers. Crocker considers importing black strikebreakers from the East, but he figures out an easier solution. He surrounds the camps with armed guards. I stopped the provisions on them, he brags. <laughs> Starving, they go back to work. 
the Transcontinental Railroad is completed in 1869. Before this picture is taken, Chinese workers are told to move aside. Then they are discharged. Some join the state's growing army of farm laborers. Thousands more drift to San Francisco, where they encounter another group of immigrants. Irish workers flocked to California after the gold rush, seeking escape from prejudice and stalled opportunities on the East Coast. They become the largest group of white immigrants in San Francisco and provide much of the muscle in constructing the new city. Not many jobs are open to women, who as late as 1860 are outnumbered in the general population by men nearly six to one. Most find work as domestics. Kate Kennedy follows another path. In the new San Francisco public schools, 57 of the 72 teachers are women. Some of the Irish transplants rise to prominence in the city's young labor movement. Alexander Kennedy, a printer, helps form the San Francisco Trades Union in 1863, the first council of unions in California. Kennedy becomes its president, starts up a labor newspaper, and leads a growing movement for a standard eight-hour workday. The need is clear. People are working 11 or 12 hours per day, six days a week. There's no such thing as a weekend. For bakers who work 14 hours, seven days per week, there is just work. In 1867, thousands of workers strike and demonstrate for an eight-hour day. By the following year, with a strong economy and after continuous pressure by unions, the legislature passes the first statewide eight-hour law in the country. It is celebrated with a huge nighttime parade in San Francisco. This moment of strength for the new trade union movement does not last long. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad floods the state with cheap goods from back east, ruining California businesses. A severe national depression sends workers west. The eight-hour day is lost due to the number of hungry workers willing to work 10 or more. Things look mighty blue at present. No money, rent due, coal nearly out, little food in the house, and worst of all, no prospects ahead, either to pay what is due or to replace what is nearly out. In cigar making and garment production, shoe and boot making, Chinese and Irish workers compete directly for scarce jobs. White workers fault the Chinese for falling wages and exclude Chinese workers from their unions. They create labels to paste on their products calling for boycotts of Chinese-made goods and urge people to buy union-made products instead. Chinese become afraid to venture out of the Chinatown ghetto for fear of racist violence. In response to the conflict, Congress holds hearings in 1876 in San Francisco to investigate the impact of Chinese immigration on the economy. I am in favor of anybody making a living that possibly can. But I am a married man and have a family of four little children suffering here. Years ago, I could average $20 a week. My average wages for the last week is $14.89. I put in 14 hours a day. 
if a Chinaman has a mind to work for my firm, he gets employment and I have to compete with him. He offers to work for about one-third less the price I am working for now. In July of 1877, hundreds of thousands of railroad workers around the country go on strike, protesting wage cuts below subsistence level. A war breaks out. On one side, the railroads, assisted by police and National Guard. On the other, railroad workers, their families and communities, fed up with the power and arrogance of the railroad companies. Hundreds of workers are killed. The corporations sustain millions of dollars in damages. In San Francisco, socialists call a meeting in solidarity with railroad workers in front of the unfinished city hall. 8,000 people peacefully hear speakers denounce the greedy railroad owners and call for an eight-hour day. But toward the end of the rally, an anti-Chinese group leads part of the crowd away, crying, on to Chinatown! This begins a three-day riot. One newspaper considers the events so extraordinary, its editor does something unheard of. He allows the words of a Chinese man to enter a news story. I was employed in Seasau's laundry. On Tuesday night, about half past 10 o'clock, two Chinese boys who had been visiting the shop started out and saw a crowd of 15 or 20 white men approaching. The Chinese boys ran back and gave the alarm. The front door was locked and we Chinamen started out the back door when we came upon two white men who had coal oil cans in their hands. They ordered us back into the house. We then attempted to escape by the front door and were fired upon with pistols by the crowd in the street. There were about 15 white men there and more than 10 shots were fired. I did not see the deceased at the time. The rest of us ran away and hid in the bushes. We heard the white man breaking open boxes. The proprietor's chest in which he kept his money was in the house. In about half an hour after we escaped, we saw the house on fire. Governor William Irwin blames the violence on hoodlums, thieves, and communists. Although the riots end after three days, their underlying causes remain. Unemployment is high, wages low. San Francisco's immigrant workers see a stark contrast between their deteriorating condition and the huge fortunes of a few capitalists, such as Charles Crocker, owner of this mansion. The house gains notoriety when a small businessman who owns a little home adjacent to Crocker's refuses to sell his lot so that Crocker can expand his palace. Enraged, the capitalist orders his workmen to build a 40-foot high fence on three sides of the little lot. This becomes known as Crocker's spite fence. Ten weeks after the riots, the Workingmen's Party of California is formed. Its members are drawn from the ranks of immigrant workers as well as small business people fearing economic ruin. The party program calls for an eight-hour day, public works to employ the unemployed, taxing the rich, controlling the railroads, and free public education for all. It also calls for deportation of Chinese workers. Oh, California's coming down, as you can plainly see. They're hiring all the Chinamen and discharging you and me. There were long processions at night, 
with big torchlights and lanterns carrying the slogan, the Chinese must go, and mass meetings where fiery tongues flayed the Chinese bogey. Dennis Kearney, an Irish immigrant and businessman wannabe, shoots to overnight fame with his rude but effective speeches in San Francisco sandlots. At a rally held on wealthy Knob Hill across the street from Crocker's spite fence, Kearney tells the workingmen's crowd, I will give the Central Pacific just three months to discharge their Chinamen. And if that is not done, Stanford and his crowd will have to take the consequences. When the Chinese question is settled, we can discuss whether it would be better to hang, shoot, or cut the capitalists to pieces. But not all party leaders are as racist or inflammatory as Kearney. I am not an advocate for the importation of the Chinamen here in droves, but I believe in the brotherhood of man. And I cannot believe that we have any right to exclude one race of people for the sake of building up another. Frank Roney is an iron molder and an exiled Irish revolutionary. For a time, he rivals Kearney in the working men's leadership. He and his followers want to steer the party toward trade union organization. For Roney, the anti-Chinese program of the party is brutal, and such as no self-respecting people would dream of imposing upon the members of any race within their midst. The only objection to them that I felt had any validity was that they were cheap workers. The Workingmen's Party spreads throughout California. It elects dozens of officials to public office. In 1878, more than a third of the delegates elected to the state constitutional convention are from the workingmen. But Roney, who by this time has been forced out of the party's leadership by Kearney, is not impressed by the party's participation in the convention. The majority of the workingmen's delegates studied fundamental law and what was best for their constituents in nearby saloons and played cards with a nourishing glass of foam-topped beer. Within a few years, the party collapses. Its major legacy is organized race hatred, bearing bitter fruit in the federal anti-Chinese exclusion act of 1882. Even after the end of Chinese immigration, white workers continue to blame Chinese workers each time the economy dives. Although Anna Smith asks, Why is the condition of working people in the East where there are no Chinamen worse than it is here? Years later, Frank Roney recalled, I took as active a part as I could to make the party as robust and as progressive as the times and circumstances permitted. It was essentially an anti-Chinese party. However, I never warmed to that feature of the agitation. Instead, after leaving the party, Roney seeks to expand working-class power by coordinating union efforts. His new organization, the Trades Assembly, stabilizes the city's labor movement. With it, workers carry their vision of the eight-hour day into the next decade. It's a mighty hard road that our poor hand has pulled, and our poor feet has traveled a hot, dusty road. As early as 1871, when most Americans lived on farms, economist Henry George wrote, the land of California is already to a great extent monopolized by a few individuals who hold thousands and hundreds of thousands of acres apiece. Over our ill-kept, shadeless, dusty roads, which run frequently for miles through the same man's land, plod the tramps with blankets on back, 
the laborers of the California farmer looking for work in its seasons. Author Jack London worked as a farm laborer. He asks, If there were constant work at good wages for every man, who would harvest the crops? The growers have their answer. Immigrants. If they can't squeeze large enough profits out of the native-born workers, they'll import workers who can be squeezed. Along the edge of your cities, you'll see us, and then we have come with the dust, and we're gone with the wind. Okay, that was uh, part one, actually, <clears throat> of Golden Land's Working Hands, A History of the California Labor Movement outlining the early, early movements in the 19th century for the eight-hour day, for example, and the fatal error of uh, dividing yourselves, of workers victimizing one another instead of blaming the capitalists who were hiring people at lower wages a lot of white workers blamed the Asian workers for working so cheaply. Well, like everybody else, they had to learn a living. They had, to, had families to support. This is what happens to us when we're divided. And why Dolores, Dolores Huerta, for one among many, says that when we're divided, why gay marriage and issues like that matter? is that if we're divided into splinter groups, it's easy, we're easily defeated. It's when we unite, when we cross those lines, when we support one another, that we win. Okay, well, this is the B, and um, it's about time to go. Make way for... Uh, Flat black plastic with uh, my buddy Scott O. Walker. Um, remember, this is labor and love, and we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get it. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, you're probably on the menu. Never, but never let anyone in your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. It requires a lot of Why, everybody? Facts of life that we must know about. Willie Dixon will take us out. And when you think about the various nations of the earth. Willie Dixon got interrupted there. Bye to uh, Sylvia, Solina, Vita, Yemen.
all of you out there, Vita, Nepo, everybody, you know who you are. See you next week for with labor and love. The various religions, the various, the various nationalities, the various people all over the world. We have been able to make anything that we want to make and do anything we want to do. Have created miracles. But it don't make sense when we can't make peace. You know, you made everything else. Wise men, great men, from every nation in the world, all the countries in the world. Swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> My friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Mufi's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for <laughs> is in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your ass.
Excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. Might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we gotta serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt, animated designs, and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco, your favorite bar. Awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. 
It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables, their old school pinball machine, and their tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Vendors brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, Punk Rock and Schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Daily. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tops with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Vendors is proud to be the sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival because they are an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the industry. Vendors Bar and Grill. Yeah. 